0: Welcome back everyone to another episode of your favorite paranormal podcast called Paranormal Exposed. This is the evidence-based podcast that looks into various paranormal occurrences that happen within the United States. I'm your host, Michelle, and I am a skeptic by nature, but I really do want to be a believer. I am both intrigued by the paranormal and open to the possibilities of what might be out there. So join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and I present to you what is real, what is not real, and what may just be in between. I'll present both the historical facts as well as the paranormal reports and we will see where the two meet. So join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode takes us out to the city of Annika, Minnesota, and this is the story of the Annika State Hospital. And a fun fact before I get into the episode is Annika, Minnesota is actually the Halloween capital of the world, which made me want to save this episode for Halloween, but I have a really good episode coming up that I'm preparing, so I'm going to save that one for Halloween instead. And you might wonder why Annika is the Halloween capital of the world. You might think maybe because it's really haunted or because the Annika State Hospital is here. And if either of those were your guesses, then you and I are both wrong on that account. Because it is actually called the Halloween capital of the world as of the year 1920. Because it is believed to be the first city in the United States that hosted a Halloween event. But moving on from the topic of Halloween... This episode with the Annika State Hospital has a lot going on with it as far as hauntings and histories, so I thought it would be a great way to ring in episode 30. And speaking of episode 30, this will actually be the final episode of season 1. I will be taking a short break to dust off my microphone and research some other spooky tales for your listening pleasure. I will be returning September 21st with a new batch of paranormal stories, so don't kind of forget about me in these next couple weeks as much more interesting stories will be on the way. And without further ado, let's get episode 30 started with the history of the Unica State Hospital. In the late 1800s, the state of Minnesota realized that they needed a new institution to care for the rising population of people with mental conditions. So in 1895, the state decided to move forward in building the Anoka State Hospital, which was actually going to be the fourth institution built in the state of Minnesota. It would actually be the first state hospital, though, that provided a place individuals who would be unable to recover with treatment or ever live outside the walls of the facility. The other three mental institutions in Minnesota would transfer these incurable patients here where they would live the duration of their lives. In June of 1899, ground was broken to begin building the institution and the property was on a gorgeous area in Minnesota. It was on 650 acres and bordered the Rum River. In 1900, the Anaka State Asylum for the Insane began opening its doors to patients. At first, when it opened, it was just one large main administration building with a wing on it that would house patients. And on March 14th of 1900, the first patients were transferred to the asylum from the nearby St. Peter's State Hospital. The first patients transferred here were actually all men, and there were 113 of them. Now, in these days, mental illness was very much misunderstood, and it was really not talked about. People thought of mentally ill people as dangerous and almost treated them like circus oddities. Per newspaper accounts, because of this, about 500 people in the Enneka area actually showed up to see the patients arriving at the hospital. After these first patients, many more patients were following in their wake, and overcrowding quickly became an issue for the asylum. So in 1902, another wing was added onto the administration building. So as time went on, of course, they needed more and more room, but the state didn't want patients to feel like they were going to be in a hospital. Remember, these people were going to live their entire lives in this building, and they wanted these patients to be more comfortable. And instead of one large hospital, they wanted the facility to be set up with multiple cottages for a more home-like feel for the patients who would be living the remainder of their lives here. They also felt like this would allow the staff to build better relations with the patients as you would have a more consistent staffing in each cottage. By the year 1917, 17 years after the facility had opened, there were then 10 cottages that had been built. There was a working farm on site, an auditorium for the patients, a new administration building, and a service building were all added to the asylum. The new setup actually allowed the asylum to house up to 900 patients, and each of the 10 cottages housed 50 patients apiece. Each of these 10 cottages had three levels plus a basement. In each of the buildings, there were bedrooms, sleeping wards, day rooms, a dining room, and an apartment for staff members who would live on site. The staff members did live in these apartments full-time to provide care for these patients, though of course they did get time off to go into town and kind of have a social life as well. Though in these beginning years, they were expected to work pretty long, grueling 15-plus-hour shifts. They didn't really get a whole lot of time off, so it was pretty tough on the staff members. Females were eventually introduced to the asylum, but they were kept in their own areas. All the females stayed in the cottages, and the males were kept in the original wings built in the administration building, though some of the cottages were male cottages. To make it easier for staff and patients to move between buildings in a safer manner, an underground tunnel system was actually put into place and these tunnels connected all of the buildings throughout the asylum. This again made it safer to transport patients to and from multiple buildings, as this made it harder for the patients to escape. It also allowed easier movement through the complex without having to face inclement weather, such as rain, snow, blizzards, things like that, as Minnesota can have some pretty harsh conditions in the winter. And trudging patients through the snow would not be ideal, especially as some of them would be going to surgery and things like that. And speaking of winter, these tunnels also had a dual purpose. Not only did they transport people, but they actually transported steam heat to all the buildings to keep them warm in the winter months. Unica also used these tunnels to transport patients via Gurney as they did have specialized surgery wards and all psychiatric patients needing surgery would actually come here to Unica from all of the other asylums in the area. In 1919, the name of the facility changed from the Unica State Asylum for the Insane to the Unica State Asylum. And then in 1937, the name changed yet again to the Anaka State Hospital. Patients were entertained at the hospital with activities, including dances, where the patients and staff could enjoy themselves, they would have movie nights, and things like that. So it wasn't all just take your medicine and stay in the room. The hospital was pretty self-sufficient with the farm on site, and patients actually assisted in completing daily upkeep with tasks at the institution. Patients would be assigned tasks as part of their therapy and were given jobs that they could mentally handle. This included patients would help with taking care of the animals at the farm, planting and harvesting crops, and the crops and the animals is actually what they would eat for meals as well. And any extra crops, milk, meat, things like that, would actually be sold to bring in extra money to help support the hospital and keep it running. Because they had such an abundance of food from the farm, the patients and staff actually ate very well. And I read quite a number of reports that staff actually complained about gaining weight because the food was so good, not really something you hear about in institution. Other patients who didn't help with the farm work had their own jobs. They needed people to cook, clean, do laundry, property maintenance, landscaping, and various other tasks around the property. Now, in addition to these work tasks, patients were also taught life skill tasks, such as being able to shower themselves, dress themselves, toilet, um, clean, things like that, just so that they could learn these self-care skills. This was done for a variety of reasons. First off, it made the patients happier with this increased sense of independence, but it also decreased the burden of care on the staff, allowing them to provide more services to everyone. This was important as the cottages with 50 people in them might only have one caregiver. This was especially important as overcrowding in the hospital became more and more of an issue. This was in part because of the rising need for mental health services and population increases, but this was also a time when tuberculosis was very prevalent throughout the United States. And in 1947, the Unica State Hospital actually became one of the first hospitals to be approved for funding by the Minnesota legislature to provide a tuberculosis center to serve Minnesota state mental hospitals. Therefore, between the years of 1948 and 1967, the Unica Hospital also became a tuberculosis treatment center. And in the 60s, they also began running an adolescent program bringing in children as young as 12 years old. So, as a side note, these young patients were kept separate in the administration building. They weren't kept with the adults. Now, with all of these people coming in younger patients, tuberculosis patients, more mentally disabled people the hospital that was designed to hold 900 patients was holding in excess of 1,300 patients at a time. That's 400 extra people in cramped quarters that you can imagine would create a lot of stress not only on the patients and the staff, but the ability to supply everyone with what they would need, such as clean linens, extra food, and things like that. Patients had to be kept in rooms with no privacy. They had sometimes bunk beds stacked three people high in some places to have room for everyone and some of the day rooms and areas had to be converted to have patients able to sleep in there. Again, this overcrowding, you can imagine, would lead to some pretty terrible conditions, though in the end, it actually brought about some good changes. Because instead of focusing on keeping the patients happy and safe, the focus began to shift to treating the conditions these patients had in hopes that the patients could reintegrate into society. I mean, they had to do this because they really just couldn't support the number of individuals needing care. Now, that sounds like pretty common sense, right? If someone has a mental condition, you should treat them to see if they can get better. But you have to think, this hospital started over 100 years ago. And at that time, they didn't have an understanding of the brain like we do and medication and therapy. So we've come a long way and treatment has become a lot better. And before this time period where they began wanting to treat mental illness, mental illness was basically just treated by making sure you ate well, slept well, kept active with exercise and things like that. Again, they really didn't understand. But as time progressed, drug therapies and medical procedures became really common at the hospital and with these interventions, many people were actually able to leave the hospital, which actually helped cement the new beliefs that people with mental conditions could be treated or even cured. This brought more attention to care in asylums and into people treating these patients more humane. The state actually began cracking down on conditions in the late 1940s after various complaints from staff members throughout the asylums in the state. In 1949, the governor of Minnesota actually held a press conference at the Anaka State Hospital. And to show his dedication for improved patient treatment, he ended up burning over 600 straitjackets and other restraints that would be used on patients. And in his speech, he really focused on getting rid of barbaric treatments that were being used in these hospitals and making sure the focus was put on getting patients better so that they could actually return to the community and their families. A year later, after this show of solidarity with the patients, a new building called the Miller Building was built on the site of the Annika Hospital. This building was put up to be used as a transitional building, And what that means is when patients would come to the hospital, they would go to the Miller building where they could be assessed and diagnosed before placed. When the diagnosis was complete and they knew what the patient needed, they would then place them where they were more appropriate, whether that was one of the cottages or in one of the wings of the administration building. With the new changes in treatment of patients versus just feeding them, The facility then averaged about a 1,000 patients in the 50s, which was much closer to the 900 that it was supposed to support. And then as the decades progressed, treatment methods got much, much better with therapy, medication. So between the years of 1960 and 1970, the population actually decreased to as low as 476 patients at a facility that could hold almost double that. And the reason the numbers were able to dip so low is that many patients were being treated on an outpatient basis, and the facility also offered transitional care and added treatment programs for dependency on various substances. In 1966, they ended up discontinuing farming on site as not as many supplies were needed due to the large decrease in number of patients as well as the director at that time felt like putting these patients to work was not something that would help their treatment plan. This was highly contested with many of the staff who stated that these people who were in here actually enjoyed farming as many of them had been farmers in their previous lives. And after the farm discontinued on the site, there were many reports that the quality of food did decrease in 1985, the hospital underwent its final name change to the current name of the Unica Metro Regional Treatment Center. Treatment actually continued to progress and patient numbers were decreasing, which resulted in the large facility being more and more obsolete. So what they did is they built a new treatment facility on site and in 19. 1999, all of the patients were transitioned from the cottages and the administration building to this new building, leaving the cottages and buildings abandoned. Over the years, the buildings were in pretty bad shape, and this was due to no one caring for them for well over a decade, leading to vandalism, water damage, and just basic wear and tear with vermin, things like that. After being vacant for about 17 years in the year 2016, the cottages were all set to be demolished as the cost to restore them was way too much and the state wasn't willing to kind of put up that cost. Though there was a group that stepped up as they saw this as an opportunity to help the homeless veteran community. The city of Anaka agreed to lease the buildings out to help these veterans but did not agree to fund the project. The funds needed to restore these 10 cottages would be well above the means of anyone. But, luckily, the community really showed their support for our veterans. Volunteers and veterans from all across the state of Minnesota came out to help with the project, And luckily, many of these people that came out were actually skilled laborers, including electricians, plumbers, drywallers, welders, and all of that. Along with these helpers, many companies donated supplies such as paint, furniture, lighting, drywall, and things like that. With the donations from these companies and all of the hours put in by these volunteers, the group was able to actually complete four of the cottages, and in 2019, these cottages became housing for homeless military veterans. Work does continue on the remaining cottages, turning those into houses, though the next project they're currently working on is the auditorium, so that these people have not only a place to live, but also a place to, you know, engage and socialize with other people. These veterans call these places home and can actually stay here as long as they need till they get back on their feet, and there are larger rooms for families and some female buildings as well. These cottages are said to be haunted, so what the group did is they wanted to cleanse the properties before the veterans moved in. They came in singing religious songs. They prayed in each area, hoping to bring the light of God to the cottages. The remaining buildings on site of where the hospital was is currently owned by Annika County. They currently use some of these buildings for continued treatment of mental health, substance abuse, and social services. And while it is no longer a functioning hospital per se in some of the old buildings, The new building on site is now a 110-bed hospital that helps those who suffer from mental illness and substance abuse, and they provide both inpatient and outpatient services. Because of the fact that the hospital is still running on site, there are veterans living here in some of the buildings, no paranormal investigations have been done at the property. You can visit and explore the grounds of the facility, but you cannot enter any of the buildings or the tunnels. You can request to have access to the buildings through paranormal investigation, things like that, but at this point in time, I've seen no one who has been approved to do so. But since you can't go in, my job is to give you all the spooky details of what would happen if you did get a chance to go in. But really quickly, before I get into the haunted portion of the episode, I do want to give you all a podcast recommendation because, let's face it, who doesn't love a great new podcast to listen to? And today I'm going to recommend a podcast from the Boo Pod Network. This podcast is part of that network as well, and what we do is we work to promote other podcasts that aren't backed by large companies which allows listeners to find a great new podcast to add to their listening library. The podcast I want to recommend today is called Spilling the Crime. And this podcast is a true crime podcast that I really enjoy. The hosts do a really good job of engaging you in each story and making you look forward to the next episode. Here is their trailer for the show. Hey guys and welcome to Spilling the Crime, a true crime podcast hosted by me, Umberto Mello, and me, Jonas Grancha. Join us in this big adventure where we will be talking about crimes with a tipsy twist. How this crime happens, I want to know what the fuck is the unwrapped chocolate. Her name is Sh- Sh- Sharma Melgenlings. Magma Magmar? <laughs> Magmar meningitis? What? Where's the dick, Lorena? Where is the dick? Oh! What is this? Uh, Are those your enemies? <laughs> Are they after me too? <laughs> Do you ever feel like a plastic? Bird? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> And then he masturbated on the carpet. <laughs> Dangerous I mean, yeah, questions. No, was, yeah, why? <laughs> we did not agree with this. <laughs> Carl said that... Don't, comp- I, what? <laughs> don't copyright us. Don't copyright us. <laughs> yes, please don't block us. So grab your glass because the spilling is about to begin. <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed the trailer and make sure you give their show a listen. And if you enjoy it, make sure you give them some feedback and rate their show as it helps them out a lot. Now on to the hauntings. Haunted reports happen throughout the grounds and in the buildings at the hospital, though the underground tunnels, of course, connecting the buildings, have the most reports. A common report is the feeling of being watched at all times. Whether you are walking around, sitting in your room or your office, you will find yourself looking over your shoulder, but you always find that there's no one there. When walking the grounds, though, you should also keep a lookout because many times you can see the apparitions of patients who have passed away. Usually when seen, there are several patients walking together and they're all wearing their white hospital outfit. Also while looking around, don't forget to look up at the windows of the old cottages and buildings as many times you can spot apparitions in the windows or even shadow people in the windows or on the grounds. In the old gym building, there is a pool that patients could use for exercise as well as enjoyment and you can hear the sounds of people splashing and playing in the pool although the pool has not been filled with water for quite a number of decades, so just a little creepy. Though, something to think about is at least they are having some fun in the afterlife. There are some reports that patients did die or drown in the pool, though I can't confirm or deny this allegation. There is a building on site called the Vail Building, and it is said to have been named after a man named Dr. Vale, who actually hung himself on the premises. Since his death, he has been seen as an apparition on the third floor. And when you spot him, he's pretty easy to distinguish from the other patients and shadow people, as when he is spotted, he is wearing a white medical doctor's coat and carrying a clipboard. Now, Vale was. The medical director at the hospital for a time and was an avid advocate for patient rights which is why the building was named after him though the issue with that is though it was named for him he did not commit suicide at the property so if a doctor is seen or did die here it is not dr vale when walking throughout the property you should keep a sweater with you at all times as Cold spots are very common throughout the buildings, grounds, and tunnels, and these are pretty big temperature changes, so keeping a sweater handy is a good idea. In the tunnels now, employees used to have a wide variety of reports going on. They would hear whispering that often sounded scared, anxious, and even panicked. Creepier, though, is the report of loud, maniacal laughing that reverberates throughout the length of the tunnels. I mean, imagine you're down here in a dark, small tunnel, and you hear someone maniacally laughing. Yeah, that's time to get the heck out. But, if you haven't been creeped out by that, you might not be creeped out by the next one, which is footsteps will be heard walking or running in the tunnels. But they're a little different from your typical ghostly footsteps, as the steps down here sound very confused. You will hear them walking or running in one direction, but then it, they stop for a few seconds, change directions, and begin walking or running in a different direction, almost as if they're lost. These sounds are so frequent and scary that eventually employees refuse to use the tunnels at all. And this could all be due to the tales surrounding what happened down in the tunnels. If you remember, the tunnels run underground and connect all the buildings that were original to the Anaka State Hospital. Those who were committed saw these tunnels as a way of escape, not understanding that they would just kind of end up in a different building. So they would run down here, but then get lost in the passageways because of all the twists and the turns. It was dark down here and easy to become lost or confused. So the patients that ended up down here would be confused, they'd be scared, and it's said that you can still see scratch marks on the wall from those patients clawing to try and get their way out. Some of these patients became so scared that they ended up committing suicide by hanging themselves from the pipes in the ceilings. These reports would account for all the haunted activity in the tunnels. I can't actually confirm whether the suicides happened or not as I couldn't access the records of how each patient died. Though the suicides by hanging does seem a bit of a stretch, as mental patients aren't usually given anything that they could harm themselves with, including belts and things like that. So unless they're ripping their clothes into shreds, tying them in knots, then kind of trying to hang themselves from a pipe without having anything to step onto is quite a stretch. And you have to think, they would have been absolutely terrified down there. They probably wouldn't have the mental capacity to even commit that act as when you're that scared, I feel like your brain just kind of shuts down. But this doesn't mean that a patient didn't die here in another way. They might have committed a suicide by another means, they might have died in transport to or from the surgery ward, and things like that. In the tunnels, some people do claim to see someone known as the Lady in Red and this woman is seen wandering the tunnels looking for someone. People believe she is looking for a man named George. George is said to have committed suicide by hanging himself in the tunnel, though other than unverified sightings, there is no evidence showing the suicide happened here or who the lady in red may be. The hospital was built along the Rum River. And this plays a part in some of the haunted reports as well. Employees and visitors report hearing screams emanating from the river and seeing apparitions walking into the water, though as they enter the water, they completely disappear. And these reports definitely have a basis, in fact, involving patients at the Anaka Hospital. In 1900, just a few months after the hospital had opened, a prisoner actually ended up escaping from the hospital. His name was William Racel, and he was a 42-year-old man with a severe mental condition. He was one of the first 113 men who had been admitted to the asylum, and when he escaped, he ran to the river no one knows if he was actually trying to cross the river to escape or he just wanted to end his mental suffering but regardless he entered the river and ended up drowning and he actually became the first grave at Anaka state hospital cemetery though unfortunately he wasn't the last as many people trying to escape the asylum over the years did head towards the river, and it is reported that a few of them drown in the fast-flowing river. This could be why the apparitions are seen and the screaming is heard near the river. They could either be screaming for rescue or just screaming because they're just scared. I don't know. Speaking of the Anaka Hospital Cemetery, there are 400 patients buried at this cemetery. And at the cemetery, shadow figures are seen, cold spots are felt, and scary whispers are heard. In addition to this, you may hear someone walking up behind you in the grass, crunching their feet, or you might hear the gate opening and closing on its own. All the graves at the cemetery are from patients who died while at the hospital from the opening of it in 1900, the year 1965. it was difficult for families to pay respect to their lost family members or for anyone to even know who was buried there for quite a long time as prior to the last few decades mental illness had quite the stigma behind it and therefore families wouldn't tell others they even had an afflicted family member they might say oh their cousin moved to another state they Just really wanted to hide it. It was very much a secret. Therefore, to protect the family and the patients, when a patient died, they were not buried with a grave marker stating their name. Each grave was actually given a number that coincided with their patient record. Though, between the years of 2008 and 2009, a group called Remembering with Dignity went through patient records and identified each of the 400 graves. So now each grave has a marker with the name of the person buried there and the date of their birth and death. There have been many claims I saw in researching this that there are over a thousand people buried here in the cemetery But the hospital records do show only 400 graves, and there are only 400 markers. Though you have to think about it, 400 people is quite a high number of deaths in a 65-year span. I did read a few articles that stated in 1920 an outbreak of the flu affected the hospital, And these articles also claim that 176 patients ended up passing away during that time. Though I'm a bit suspect of this claim for a few reasons. First off, around that time, the hospital could house 900 patients. and These patients were separated in cottages holding 50 people apiece, with the workers staying in that one building. So there wasn't workers going to and from all the different cottages. The other patients were in wings of the main building, and this setup would have slowed the spread of the flu, and if you have one worker hanging out in one cottage in one dining room, I mean, I don't see why the flu would have spread that fast. Also, many patients here would have been younger and less susceptible to passing away from the flu, though again, it would still be possible, so I can't say it didn't happen based on that. I wouldn't have questioned it too much, except for a couple other important factors. The less significant one is there was no newspaper article speaking of a high number of deaths in Annika at that time. But again, reports from the asylum may not have been reported due to privacy, stigma, and things like that. But the third fact is what really made me think that this might not have happened. The graves of the patients are in order by the year they died. So the grave numbers do not add up to even over 100 by the time this flu epidemic is said to have killed all of these people. And there's also not a lot of people who died in the same year. Therefore, some may have died during the time of the flu, but nowhere near the 176 that have been reported over and over again. But, we still have 400 graves, and you might wonder, how did all of these people die if not from the flu? Well, that could have actually been worse than the flu itself. As I mentioned previously, some people drowned in the river, but escapes were very common because there was no fencing or bars at the window, or really any way to keep the patients in. So some ended up dying by their own hands or in accidents during their escape. And even inside the facility, per staff members, suicide in the facility was actually very common. Though unfortunately, many of the deaths actually happened at the hands of those who were supposed to be helping these mentally incapacitated people. Annika Hospital was one of the pioneers of many treatments, which are now really kind of frowned upon, you'd say. Treatments over the years included electroshock therapy, hydrotherapy, and even lobotomies. Lobotomies were performed on-site and were a newer treatment, which actually led to many people dying during the procedure. Between 1952 and 1962 alone, 91 lobotomies were performed which is a really high number for a facility housing around 1,000 patients at that time, with many of them staying for their lifetime, so it wasn't a lot of turnover. This is also true of electroshock therapy, in which Anaka Hospital was actually the pioneering hospital for this treatment. And while learning how to use this treatment, some people did die in the process. The sad part about it is many people were actually given electroshock treatment as a punishment for bad behavior versus using it as a treatment option for making them better. But can you really blame these patients for their bad behavior? I mean, they lived in overcrowded conditions which weren't cleaned properly. They were subjected to horrid treatments and medication. And they would even be left in straitjackets or tied to their bed for days on end. And this is bad enough for someone mentally insane, but what about someone of sound mind? Imagine if this happened to you. Because while we think of an asylum having those with a high degree of mental illness, asylums had other people you might not think about. This included people with dementia mental disorders that would be brought on by things like untreated syphilis, postpartum depression, people who were seen as different or not conforming to popular beliefs, and poor people who had nowhere else to go, or those seen as feeble-minded as part of the eugenics movement. And if you haven't heard of the eugenics movement, it was a horrible, horrible practice and you should definitely educate yourself on it just kind of so you know some of our history. People also ended up here because there was nowhere else for them to go. There was no nursing homes for an elderly parent who fell and broke their hip or a food kitchen to help the poor so they would end up at the asylum or the hospital whatever it might have been called at that time. Also scary Pretty much anyone could commit another human being to a mental health institution. So if your wife is depressed and not attending to her husband's needs after having a child, he could have her committed to be with his girlfriend. And if your family member did not ask for your release, your commitment would be permanent. Just to kind of paint a better picture for you with this, I'm going to give you a few patient stories. The first one is Lucille. She was a girl who was committed to the institution by her own mother. Lucille was not married and became pregnant, which back in the day was well, well below the standards of what was okay and not condoned at all. Lucille was committed by her mother and gave birth to her baby at the hospital. Though after giving birth to the baby, her baby was ripped away from her making Lucille angry and anguished from losing her child, her freedom, and her family in one foul swoop. She would scream out, quote, They can't do this to me. It's my baby. I'm its mother. End quote. She couldn't be settled, as you could imagine. I mean, how would you react? I'd scream and fight too. Though the hospital marked her as mentally ill, uncontrollable, and combative, so she was restrained for months on end, and in the end when she wouldn't conform, she was lobotomized. Another woman, referred to as Mrs. V, was married to her husband when she was only 17 years old. Her husband was running around on her and ended up giving her syphilis. He then had her committed where her syphilis advanced without treatment. As before the 50s, the hospital was a place of lifetime internment, not treatment. Mrs. V stated, quote, He has another woman. He never comes to see me. He took me here and left me here, End quote. Another story comes from a black woman who was committed to the asylum based on the color of her skin. She was a clear-minded and intelligent woman who was independent in the facility. She basically took care of herself and kind of kept to herself. Though one day, a white patient began harassing this black woman. And so what they did is instead of punishing the white patient, they moved the black woman to a ward reserved for violent patients. This led to her having to hide in the corner most days, shivering in fear for her life. Scary, right? I mean, this could have been any of us. Of course, we would try and fight the system, which could lead you to being lobotomized or having shock treatments. These people in these stories, as well as hundreds of others, died under horrible conditions. I mean, would you be surprised if some of their spirits remain here? Such trauma may actually hold their spirits to this place. This could be why employees and visitors claim to feel unwelcome and like they are trespassing. Some people even state that they have heard voices telling them to get out. They may be tied here for another reason, too, though. It is said, that spirits can be tied to objects important to them in their lives. And I would think your brain would be important to you, right? Well, in the 1950s, the study of the brain was becoming more and more common practice as we began to really understand all the different lobes and things like that. Therefore, throughout the state, when someone with a mental illness or Alzheimer's disease died, Therefore, throughout the state, when someone with a mental condition or Alzheimer's disease died, their brains would be removed from them after autopsy, and these brains would be shipped to the Annika Hospital to be studied. Here, a neuropathologist would actually diagnose the brain itself to further understand mental illness and memory loss. And actually, by the 1970s, there were over 2,000 brains that had been collected at Anaka. Maybe some of the spirits are haunting here because they're still attached to their brain. I mean, it's bad enough that you keep them here against their will, but then you keep their brains and study them. There is another odd report about the hauntings on the ground of Anaka State Hospital. There are a high number of feral cats, and it is said that if you shine a flashlight in the woods around the hospital grounds, you will see the shining of dozens and dozens of cats' eyes. It is believed by locals that these cats are the spirits of patients who have died here. I will let you believe what you'd like to on that report, um... Just one food for thought is over the years, a rescue has been doing a catch and release neutering and spaying program for these feral cats, and there has been a very sharp decline in the numbers to almost zero. As I said, a lot to take in with this episode. The hospital started with really good intentions and ended up really being a house of horror for many as the years progressed till things turned around. And over the years, it became what it is today, which is a place to help those in need. Though so in those years of horror, hundreds of people died, and many in very unpleasant ways. Whether it was because they had a botched surgery, they were electroshocked too much, they died from tuberculosis, or maybe because they had a lobotomy. Maybe they committed suicide or died of old age. The way they lived and died here was not a pleasant thing. It is highly plausible that their spirits would continue to live at the Anaka Hospital grounds to this day. Maybe you might feel unwanted there and they tell you to leave. And maybe that's because they don't want the same fate for you that befell them. Or maybe they want peace from people after being treated so horribly by them in their life. I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you think the Anaka State Hospital is haunted or not. I'd love to hear any personal experiences you may have proof or other facts you'd like to share in general this is usually the part of the episode where I tell you to make sure you tune in every Wednesday but this is the ending episode of season 1 so a new episode will actually not air till Wednesday September 21st. So make sure you keep an eye on social media as well as keep a follow on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts so you know when that next episode is ready to signal the start of season two. Speaking of social media, make sure you follow on there for more information on this episode, including pictures, links, and much, much more. You can follow on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed, on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, or you can always shoot me an email to paranormalexposedpodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear an email or something from you guys on a story you might want to hear coming up in season two, as I do have four glorious weeks to prepare you for some more spooky tales. And I also have something exciting coming up with the Boo Pod Network, which you will keep an eye out for social media to find more information as well. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will catch you all in Season 2 on September 21st.